Our passage of scripture today comes from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I am pausing our series on idolatry for one week to address the heart-wrenching issue of residential schools. It's been in the news again for the last week and a half or so, and I wanted to speak about it. Some of you are well acquainted with the history of these residential schools, and others of you are less informed But whatever level of understanding you have, my goal today is to bring us all to a place of realizing the depth of the problem and how we can respond then as followers of Jesus. My goal is that we develop a reflexive gospel response to evils like this. I want us to live into the gospel-rich response to this evil and all other kinds of evil like it in light of God's reconciling work in the world. I also want to acknowledge that talking about this today will be upsetting to some people. If it upsets you because you or someone you love lived through the horrors of the residential schools, Let me encourage you to reach out to us and allow us the opportunity of walking through this with you. You are not alone, and it would be our honor. If it upsets you because you didn't know how bad the residential schools were until this week, and like many I've spoken with, you all of a sudden have a deep sense of guilt that you feel, and you feel it eating away at you. Let me encourage you that the good news of God's grace is sufficient for you to wrestle through this today. Again, we want to serve you as best we possibly can. You're not alone. But please hear me. We will never reconcile these things while they remain in the dark. The truth matters. It's important to acknowledge the truth of what has been done. There can be no true forgiveness and no true reconciliation until the darkness of residential schools has been fully exposed and brought into the light of day. See, I believe in the power of God's reconciling love. But I also know that things kept in the dark will not heal. We have to bring this into the light, and so that is my aim today. I want to bring the darkness of residential schools out into the open so the light of the gospel can shine into it and shine upon it. We're going to talk about residential schools, our responses, and the way forward. Residential schools, our responses, and the way forward. Let me lay out a little history so that we know we are on the same page when we're talking about residential schools. 
Most residential schools did not begin operating until the 1880s, and it was not until 1883 when the federal government developed a more aggressive policy and a system to enroll indigenous children in these schools. The residential school system was part of a larger government agenda to assimilate indigenous people into white European settler society and culture by way of education. In uh, a, a debate in the House of Commons on May 9th, 1883, our then Prime Minister, the first Prime Minister of Canada, John A. Macdonald, who was at that time now serving his second stint as our Prime Minister, he argued that these residential schools needed to be built off of the reserves so that children could be separated from their families. He said, and I quote, When the school is on the reserve, the child lives with its parents who are savages, and though he may learn to read and write, his habits and training mode of thought are Indian. He is simply a savage who can read and write. It has been strongly impressed upon myself as head of the department that Indian children should be withdrawn as much as possible from the parental influence, and the only way to do that would be to put them in central training industrial schools where they will acquire the habits and modes of thought of white men. The policies were implemented and the residential schools were built with the express purpose of what the leaders of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission called cultural genocide. The declared intent of the residential schools program was to take the children away from their families so that they could take the Indian out of the child. It was a year after John A. MacDonald made that statement in the House of Commons in 1884 when the Indian Act was amended to fund the creation of more residential schools and the operation of these schools was handled by the Roman Catholic Church, the Anglican Church, and a group of churches that later merged into what we now know as the United Church. The system of residential schools was severely underfunded, and neglect and malnutrition and abuse and disease were widely reported. People knew. It was documented that children were dying in these residential schools at much higher rates than anywhere else in the country. Over a 120-year span, the government and these churches operated a total of 139 residential schools where 150,000 indigenous children were enrolled. While it is documented that at least 3,200 students died of disease and abuse while enrolled in these schools, it is also estimated that the real number could be more than 6,000. The 3,200 confirmed deaths means that one in every 50 students died while enrolled in a residential school, which is a death rate comparable to the number of Canadian prisoners of war who died in the custody of Nazi Germany in the Second World War. The last federally run residential school closed in 1996. I was 15 years old. This is not ancient history. 
I said talking about this will be upsetting to many of you, and it is upsetting to me for a lot of reasons that are deeply personal. For a lot of reasons that are deeply personal, I've never spoken publicly about this before. My grandmother, Cecile, Grandma Cease, was born in 1936, and she was then put up for adoption. She was adopted as an infant, and her adoptive parents were part of the Enoch Cree Nation, which is a reservation just outside of the city of Edmonton. After finding her biological family many years later, when she was much older, she was told they think she was a quarter Cree. She told me that she was too white to fit in on the reserve and that she was too Indian to fit in in the white man's world. This sense of displacement that she lived with was something that she carried with her until she died in January earlier this year. She was about seven years old when she was taken from her family at Enoch and placed in a residential school, again, just outside of Edmonton. The mental and physical abuse in that school was bad, but one of the things that confused her as a grade two or three student was why she received less abuse than her other friends and family. See, she was receiving less abuse than the other children in the school because she was whiter. She talked about being pulled aside by the nuns who would talk to her quietly and say, don't you realize you're different than them? I just want you to stop and think about that for a moment, that she was less abused in that school because of the color of her skin. She was less abused than her adoptive family members. She was less abused than her friends because her skin was not as dark. When she was done with residential school, like many other children, she did not go back to her family. Like many other students, she ended up in the foster care system. And she ended up in an even more abusive situation, and she was stuck there until she was able to launch out on her own. So the news this week and all of the news over all of the years about residential schools is quite personal to me. It's painful to talk about, which is why I have up until this point stayed silent about it in public, something that I now think was wrong. See, I saw the legacy of pain of the residential schools and the lines on my grandmother's face. I heard the lasting pain of abuse that she suffered in the sound of her voice. And when I was a kid, I felt that generational inheritance of all of those tired old racist policies in the comments and the things I would hear from my friends, my teammates, anytime. Grandma would come to watch me play a hockey game and she'd be dressed in a beautiful leather jacket with beaded tassels hanging off of it. I would hear their racist taunts and I would hear the jokes. And I just became quieter and quieter. 
And there hasn't been a day since I heard about what they have found in Kamloops that I have not wept, thinking that any one of those unmarked graves could have been my grandma when she was just a scared, beautiful little seven-year-old girl who'd been taken from her family so that she could learn to be less Indian and more white. Our responses, we need to talk about our responses that we've had this week. This is not meant to be an exhaustive list of our responses, but it's certainly a sample of the responses that I and the other pastors here have heard this week. Some of you are angry. Me too. So is God. Some of you feel guilty. Me too. See, it's one of the challenges of feeling, you know, a, a small percentage of that same displacement that my grandmother felt. Which part of myself do I respond with? The, the 1 16th Cree or the 15 16th white? Some of you have responded with indifference. You heard the news, you were maybe reading the news on an app on your phone, you just kept scrolling for the next news story. Some of you were indignant, if you're honest. If you're honest, you're a little bit annoyed that this is still being discussed. You're the ones who thought, man, we've, we've done enough about this, can we not just move on? And others of you are absolutely broken, and you're having a hard time seeing past your pain, and you're tempted to numb it. You may not have any of those responses, and you may have multiple of those responses all blended together in an emotional stirring that you're not quite sure what to do with. The question is, what are we supposed to do about it? This is the way forward. We need to discuss the way forward. The gospel of Jesus is a gospel of reconciliation because Jesus is the great reconciler. All things that are ever going to be ultimately reconciled in any ultimate way are going to be reconciled in Jesus. Again, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I want you to hear verses 19 and 20 one more time. For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Through Jesus, all things are reconciled to God, whether on earth or in heaven. 
All things are reconciled to God. How? Through the blood of Jesus' cross. See, the only reconciliation we have is through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. Any real peace we have with God or with one another has been made by Jesus through his death on the cross. Since Adam and Eve rebelled in the Garden of Eden and sin entered into the human story, there has been alienation from God and estrangement from one another. Alienation from God and estrangement from one another. The alienation from God has been evidenced for us in the Garden of Eden when, when we see that God cast Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. We read that in Genesis chapter 3. In the very next chapter, we see the estrangement from one another that I'm talking about evidenced in the first murder in the Bible when Cain killed Abel. And try as we might, in our own strength, there is nothing we can do to fix the ultimate alienation and estrangement that we feel. That's why Jesus came. And he lived the perfect life that we should have lived and he died the death that we deserve to die for sin. He came to make a way for our reconciliation, to reconcile us from our condition of alienation and estrangement from one another. This is the evidence of God's love for us. That there was a problem and Jesus entered into it to fix it. Romans chapter 5 verse 6 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more will we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The reconciling work of Christ on the cross is the answer to both our alienation from God and our estrangement from one another. But I need you to see that the horrors of the residential schools and other evils like this around the world are grounded in the original story of the original sin, which is the explanation for the existence of hate and evil like this in our world. This is why we need not only reconciliation with God, but with one another. Our alienation with God leads us to do horrible things to one another. And that's been going on since the beginning. See, the biblical vision of reconciliation is holistic. And it deals with our relationship with God in a vertical way, but it also includes our relationships with one another. But the way forward is not just acknowledging how you feel and then trusting that Jesus will make it all better, though that is true and you should hang on to that. The call for us is to participate in God's mission of reconciliation in this world. Let me show you 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Okay, Christians participate with God's mission by being transformed into ambassadors of reconciliation. But that reconciliation that the Bible is talking about is not some kind of just me and Jesus reconciliation that only has a vertical plane to it. It's not less than that. It's just way more than that. It's a far more comprehensive reconciliation than we would maybe first think. In a really wonderful essay put together by a number of authors in the Lausanne papers uh, that's called The Reconciliation as the Mission of God, they said this, In becoming agents of biblically holistic reconciliation, we must learn to name and confess the sins of the past and present and encourage others to do the same. Be willing to forgive and live in new ways of repentance and costly peacemaking. Above all, Christians must be people of hope, hope in God's victory in Christ and that over time, reconciliation can break in because this is God's mission. This is what we are called to participate in. It is a holistic mission of participating in what God is doing in the world. He is a God of justice. He is a God who rights all wrongs. He is a God who is one day going to make all things new. Our participation in his mission as his ambassadors of reconciliation means that we don't only get connected vertically to God, but we have a purpose to live out in this world. And it means that we willingly acknowledge the brokenness and sin and heinous crimes committed against people who we might not know. And we do so because that is a participant way, a way of participating in his mission of reconciliation. Yeah, I said my goal was that we develop a reflexive gospel response to evil like we've seen in the residential schools. I said God's reconciling work in the world means we have become ambassadors of reconciliation. I said that Jesus is the great reconciler and that we are now ministers or ambassadors of that reconciliation. And one of the ways that we live that out is to fearlessly name the truth of what has happened and has brought destruction in our world, especially when the church has been so grievously complicit it in it. That's why I spent so much time on the front end of this message explaining what happened to make sure we're on the same page. We must name evil. See, sin brings destruction and separates us. Forgiveness in the gospel brings peace and reconciles us. There can be no reconciliation without forgiveness. But there can be no forgiveness until there is at the very least an acknowledgement of what has been done. So we name the evil. We say that the entire policy of residential schools was evil. 
We say that the church's complicity in managing and operating the residential schools was evil. That trying to remove the Indian from a child so that they could be more white is evil. We are going to one day stand around the throne of Jesus with every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we are going to lift up our voices in praise in our heart language. In the residential schools, the kids were taught to pray, but they were not allowed to pray in their own language. You've just got to put yourself into the history a little bit to understand our job now as ambassadors of reconciliation. We name the evil. We do not hide from the truth. The only way things heal is to take the truth and put it in the light. We bring the message of reconciliation of all things to bear upon the situation by proclaiming the forgiveness made available to us through the finished work of the cross of Jesus. Because in receiving that forgiveness, we are now free to extend that forgiveness to others. It's restoration, not retribution, that the gospel empowers us to live out. So what do you do with how you feel? It's a fair question. I said I think one of us, or all of us, are are a mix of one or more of these emotions. We're either angry or we're guilty or we are indifferent or we're indignant or annoyed or we're broken. Maybe more than one, maybe none of them if, if I'm wrong. But I think most of us are feeling some measure of this. Let me deal with the two that I think are wrong first and then I'll move on to the other three. Um, If you hear the horrors of the residential schools and you are indifferent, um, can I lovingly say with all of the pastoral care that I can muster, um, you are wrong. God is never indifferent to suffering and injustice. So if you're full of the Holy Spirit, you should not be indifferent either. Uh, The right response to indifference in this case is, I believe, repentance. If you hear the horrors of the residential schools and you are indignant or annoyed at the status of things, um, can I just ask you to ask yourself why? Why you are a bit annoyed that this is going on? I, I think you likely don't have a sense of what the destructive power of generational trauma in a community can do to prolong suffering. That's my guess. It's my guess when you hear that and you're actually kind of angered that it's being talked about again. That's my guess. I, I honestly... I don't know what else, but I think the right response to indignance is likely doing the work to gain more of an understanding of what happened and getting to know the stories of those who went through it. It will help you to not respond with indignance, but with grace as God responds to us. I think you could start by reading the 94 calls to action in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report. It's a 20-page document. You can find it online. Um, they're a great start. I think Christian love will take us deeper than the 94 uh, suggested points of action. Um, Only a few of them are are specifically for the church of Jesus. I see no reason why we should not embrace all of them. Okay, now the three responses that I named that I want to talk about a little more. What if you're angry? Well, like I said before, be angry. 
God is angry at injustice. But don't take that anger out on people. Pray that anger. That's why we have the imprecatory psalms. There are psalms that are raging. And I believe we can pray like that against injustice. Talk to God about your anger. What I want to say is bring your anger into the presence of God. Miroslav Volf, who wrote a phenomenal book called Exclusion and Embrace, he has a tremendous story to tell, and it's a very, very important book for our generation to read. He said, In the presence of God, our rage over injustice may give way to forgiveness. When we bring our rage into the presence of God, our rage over injustice, it will give way to forgiveness. And that's the goal. Listen to what Paul told the church in Rome. Romans chapter 12, verse 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, the good you can do with your anger is to love the people who have been traumatized by this with patient listening and prayer and your presence with them. Take your anger, bring it to God, melt it into forgiveness. For you have been forgiven much, you also can forgive. And then sit with those who have been traumatized by this experience. Hey, what if you feel guilty? Well, I guess the first thing I want to ask is why you feel guilty. If you've participated in racism or oppression of people, then you must repent and seek to make it right. Perhaps this is the gift of the Holy Spirit in using this situation to convict you of your sin, that you might come to Jesus and receive forgiveness. On the other hand, particularly if you have a very sensitive conscience, and particularly if you're white, You may feel guilty because sometime in the last year, somebody told you that your whiteness is sin. That's a lie. There are faulty ideologies of social justice right now that are telling people the color of their skin makes them complicit in oppression. And I just want to be really clear that this is nonsense. If you've been complicit in oppression, you can come to the cross and you can receive forgiveness for your sin and you will be forgiven. As Miroslav Volf would say, we will not exclude you, we will embrace you. If you have been an oppressor, we would embrace you at the cross. Yes. But if the color of your skin is supposed to make you feel guilty, there's no atonement for that. There's no cross you can go to for the color of your skin which is why that ideology is flawed. It's an anti-gospel ideology that is a textbook case of what happens when the oppressed become the oppressors. And if that's why you feel guilty, I just want to say perish the thought. Lay it at the feet of Jesus and receive the Father's love. Mostly my guess is that you feel guilty because you didn't know the full extent of the residential school program. So learn what has happened. Name the evil. Don't hide from the truth. Bring the message of the reconciling hope of the gospel to bear. Trust in the finished work of Jesus that forgiveness has been made available through the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Do that. And Christ said, what if you're just utterly broken by this and you don't know what to do? 
Just come to Jesus. There's no brokenness you can't bring to him. He's the healer of every wound. He's the one who binds up every broken heart. I want you to know that time does not necessarily heal all wounds. That there are some wounds that we're going to ache with until we die. But I want you to know more than that, that Jesus promises to meet us in our darkest hour and to walk us into an eternity where all of our wounds will be healed once and for all. So bring your pain and brokenness to Jesus. And listen to this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning or crying nor pain anymore for the former things passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Bring your brokenness to Jesus, knowing that that's your future. Let me pray. Father, as we enter into a time now for some in house churches celebrating communion and, and others wrestling deeply with a heavy issue, Lord, I pray that you would not let us escape your mercy. Don't let us escape your love. Fill us with your spirit, we pray, that you compel us to live lives that are faithful before you, to serve you in the reconciling mission you've sent us on, to proclaim the forgiveness for sin and the sufficiency of Christ for all the needs of our salvation. We pray that you would empower us to, send, uh, to, to, to be sent into this world with that hope that we might come alongside the broken, that we might come alongside the guilty, that we might come alongside the angry and point them to you, Father. For you are good and your love endures forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.